And I want you to think about that mentality, how excited I was to know my sister was okay. To know she had gotten home safe and sound is exactly how the father in this story felt towards his son who had came home. Because when someone's lost, you'll drop everything to find them, correct? Let's recap the past two weeks. We have a younger son who asked for his inheritance early. He became so desperate when he went out and lived a prodigal or a wasteful lifestyle that he lost everything and and wanted to eat what the pigs were eating. But the scripture said that no one would even give him anything. Then it says he came to his senses and returned home to a loving and accepting father who immediately restored and forgave him. Now think back to week one as we talked about a forgiving father. What did the father give him? He gave him the best robe, which was a sign of special treatment. The best robe in the household were reserved for high-profile guests or very special guests who would come over. It's kind of like... Uh, some of you ladies at home have your nicest china in the china cabinet and you use it maybe once a year for Christmas. Well, that's how the father did for his son. He brought out the best robe from the closet that was normally reserved for the most highest special gift. Gave him the best robe. And then he gave him a ring. The ring meant that he was no longer a slave, which it says that he worked for a Gentile. But his father gave him a ring which showed that he was a now in part of the authority of the family. Which means that the father had servants. So if you had a ring, you could tell the servants what to do. Now come on somebody. When Jesus invites you into the family of God, you don't just get welcomed into the family. You get authority. Can somebody help me today? You have authority over demons and over angels. You can, you can summon angels for healing or you can cast out demons from somebody who's afflicted. We have the authority of Christ because we're in his household. And then it says that they gave him sandals. You see, a slave was not allowed to have shoes. And he had lived and squandered his lifestyle and he came barefooted. And the father said, give him some shoes. And that was a sign now that he was a free man, no longer a slave, And so the image that we get is that he would have been a slave to the world or that before Christ, we don't have shoes, that we are indeed a slave to the world and a slave to sin. In fact, we have no foundation at all without Christ. You can't run the race without shoes. And so when he came into the father's household, he was now given shoes and was no longer a slave. The father's acceptance was full, complete and without lack. Agape love was truly shown. There was no condition to receiving the love. And there is no degree to which it can be shown. Not only is God's love unconditional, but Fred, it's also unbelievable. Not only did the father find the son, but the son found true forgiveness. So then again, what is a good story without conflict? Right? I mean, who likes to go to a movie And where everything's just nice and happy. Well, today, the third week, we get to the part of the story where there's a little bit of conflict. I've heard people say, well, you know what? I didn't like that church because there is too much conflict. Y'all heard anybody say that? You know, if someone says that, just tell them to read the New Testament. Because you can't read the Bible 
and not find conflict all throughout it. Listen, in the house of God, there's going to be conflict. You know why? Because the devil doesn't like it. And he wants to mess things up. I say this. When you find a church where everything's going okay, God's probably not working there. You find a church where God's working, the devil wants to start attacking. You see, the devil's content with people who aren't really doing anything. And he'll let you be happy and comfortable all day long. But when God starts working, you start serving for God, the devil wants to mess things up. Without conflict, there is not even change or progress. If you don't feel like the past two weeks of this series have taught you anything, don't worry, today I'm actually preaching about you, the self-righteous. And I hope that's not anybody. But some people say, well, I just don't get anything from that preacher. Do you know what? A hungry sheep will eat whatever the shepherd brings. You'll get something if you want to get something. One of the terms I will be using today is legalism. Let me define that quickly for you. Legalism is the doctrine that salvation can be gained through good works or the judging of conduct in terms of adherence to precise laws. So someone who's legalistic is really going to be concerned about all the rules. Someone who's legalistic says, oh, you can't go see that movie, you're going to hell. I heard a Sunday, uh, I, I talked with a lady this week that, you know, her husband many years ago could, could not find a job and could not find work. And so she went out as a, as a mother, as a wife, and, and found a job. And, and her Sunday school teacher said, well, well you're, you're out working as a wife, you're supposed to be at home. If you go work, you're going to hell. Now that's legalistic. All right. If God needs to answer and provide a household, Proverbs 31 says a godly woman helps to provide for her household. And if she goes out and does what she needs to do, it's not legalistic to tell her that she's doing wrong. So we're going to look in Luke 15 is still where we are. Luke chapter 15. And we're reading kind of the latter half of the story. While you're turning there, uh, as far as I know, our brother Bernie, who came down uh, last week during the invitation, will be baptized next Sunday. Is everything still on for that, Bernie? And he's going to have family here, and, and I'm excited. Let's go ahead and praise God for that, amen? I'm excited about, uh, as pastor here, being able to baptize someone in Bernie. You'll be the first fruits of many. I believe that. Let's look in Luke chapter 15, and I'm going to start in verse 23. We pick up midway in the Father's conversation, and he says, And bring the fatted calf here, and kill it, and let, it eat. let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad. 
For your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. May God bless the reading of his word. We can infer from the text today that this household was not Baptist. Because when it says he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. All right, that was a joke, people. Let's lighten up right quick, all right? It's okay to have fun in the house of God. Now, let me just go off for a minute and, and, and talk about worship and, and celebrating salvation. Now, I can understand not dancing in fellowship halls. You know, we let people get married in the church, but then we tell them to go find someplace else and have their reception because they can't dance in the house of God. I wonder, since marriage is a picture of the bride being married to the bridegroom of Christ, if there will be any dancing on that day. I just think about that. Maybe we'll have to not go to the Baptist church and find some place that will hold us. But at what point did legalism tell us that dancing was not a part of worship? I wonder this morning if, if anybody danced when Lazarus stepped out of the tomb. I wonder if angels danced when Jesus was resurrected. And I wonder if the paralytic man who was lowered through the roof, never having walked in his life, I wonder if he danced when Jesus said, Get up and take your mat and walk. Does anybody ever judge the football player who dances in the end zone? You ever seen a football player bust through uh, uh, 11 defenders and get the end zone and break out in a little dance and no one's legalistic on him? Well, he shouldn't be acting that way in the end zone. But it comes to salvation and being set, sin from, from, uh, set free from sin and hell and we say, no, we can't dance in God's house. It's a little bit different. But, you know, we can, we can stand there in a church on Sunday and watch a, a sinner come down the aisle and get set free and here's what you see. Amen. It's a little backwards to the way the world has fun with worldly things. I apologize for not having notes in your bulletin this week. My uh, computer crashed and I was not able to email them to Charlie. So I hope you can forgive me, but I hope you'll take notes in your own Bible or your own notebook. Uh, but if you're taking notes today, I would like to point out the three phases of legalism. So the first phase of legalism is that legalism nudges. What do I mean by that? Well, let's think that Jesus was telling this parable to an audience composed of sinners and Pharisees. Now, the sinners really like the part about being forgiven. But here, Jesus is kind of talking about the legalistic who are governed by a set of laws. Now we get to the third part, and it's addressing the self-righteous in the crowd. Instead of being concerned about what God is doing, the legalistic are normally concerned about what everyone else is doing. Instead of going straight to the Father, if you'll look in your scripture, it says that he stayed outside the house and called for a servant. Now imagine this. I don't know where you grew up, but if I came to my mom and dad's house and I heard music and dancing... I would go in and see what's going on. I mean, it's the house I grew up. I have a, just as much right to enter there. But what's interesting is that he stayed outside the house. And when I say legalism nudges, here's what happens with the legalistic person. They see something going on and they nudge somebody. Hey, what's going on over there? They don't actually want to get involved. 
They just want to know about it. That's how a lot of people inside or outside the church are. The self-righteous always go to someone else instead of going straight to the source. You know, instead of confronting someone for maybe they said something that hurt you, the legalism will go up to someone and say, Did you hear what so-and-so said about me? Don't worry what they said. Just say, hey, I just want to let you know. I don't know what you meant by it, but that hurt me, and I just needed to get that out. You see, it never fixes a problem to go to someone else. It only makes the problem worse. And it says that he asked what's going on. Instead of going inside, he calls for one of his servants to explain it to him. Now, he had just as much right to go straight to his father, say, Dad, what are you doing here? But he doesn't even go ask his dad. He calls for a servant. Now, I think personally, as Jesus was telling the story, maybe Jesus is inferring that he actually knew what was going on. It wasn't the time of the calendar year when there should have been a feast. It wasn't uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, or it wasn't the Feast of Passover. So it says... He heard music and dancing. There are probably not many scenarios for why the father would be celebrating unless the younger son had returned. You see, I think the older brother knew the younger son was home. And he said, what's going on here? What's going on? And that's why he didn't want to go inside is because he kind of knew what was going on. Have you ever heard that if you don't know what you are doing, ask someone else because they probably know? If you don't know what you're doing, someone else surely knows what you're doing. I had people in the community from my last church that I moved from who would come up to me and say, man, are you doing okay? I say, yeah, why? I heard about stuff going on at your church. Oh, really? What have you heard? And they would say, well, I heard this going on with the preacher or or this going on with the the finance committee or that new place y'all and going on and on and on. In most people, people spread the bad things they hear. And I'll say, I'll say, let me tell you what's going on there. I said, we have students that are having prayer meetings seven nights a week. We have homosexuals who are being delivered from that lifestyle. And we have a number of students who are being called into full-time ministry. And see, whenever they wanted to come nudge me about problems, all I did was fill their ear with what God was doing. And that kind of shut them up right quick. People always want to talk about what they know and what is going on as conflict instead of what God is doing. I believe the older son knew what was going on, but he couldn't bring himself to go inside and be a part of it. The reality here was that he didn't want to celebrate the return of his brother because he believed his brother didn't deserve it. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning about... Does so-and-so deserve that from God, or do I deserve it from God? Legalism happens when your way gets in front of Yahweh. That's pretty good right there. you got to write that one down if you hadn't done that already. And if you don't know, Yahweh is the name of God as revealed in the Bible. You see, Burger King says, have it your way, but Christianity says, have it Yahweh. And where the conflict comes is where our way gets in place of God's way. It's about what we want instead of what God wants. Some people will say, well, you know, I just don't like the music that they're playing at these churches young people are going to these days. Have you heard anybody say that? And they'll say, it's too loud, and they shouldn't have drums in the church. 
Well, let me get what you're saying if that's correct. So you are okay with singing songs written a hundred years ago if it means not changing something to reach a younger generation. Is that what people are really saying? Is that we are more content to be comfortable than we are to do something different to reach a lost generation. That's a lot of times what it means. Or that means that the average Baptist church in America is less than 100 members. Do you know why? Because they are doing church the same way that church has been done for 50 years. In the business sector, innovation is the key to growth. But in the church sector, we think that that, uh, innovation is of the devil. Oh, we shouldn't have TVs in the church because we might as well be Amish. That don't belong in the house of God. Or we shouldn't have projectors in the church because we have hymnals. I want you to know something for a minute. Did you know that it was a huge controversy 300 years ago whether or not the congregation could sing? This was a huge controversy, and I did some research on this. 300 years ago, the people of the church were not even allowed to sing in church. They thought it was worldly. They thought it wasn't proper. You would have the the priests or the pastor who would lead in a song, but the church members had to remain silent. But there was a man by the name of Benjamin Keach who in 1690 decided that church members should be able to sing. And he decided to change centuries of worship style. And he introduced the hymnal. You see, a lot of times we think the hymnal is how it's always been done. 300 years ago, there was no hymnal. You were not even allowed to sing. But a man named Benjamin Keach innovated and wanted progress to allow people to worship properly. And we must keep that same spirit of progress. We must keep that same spirit of change or we can revert to legalism. I, uh, I've ministered with a group of young musicians before where they told uh, a young man in a, in a band that he could not let his drums into the church house. And I thought to myself, well, we allow drums on the CD tracks and the tape tracks But don't let them in the house of God, because that's different. That's what legalism does. I knew one church where the pastor put a soundboard in the back of the church like you have now. The deacons made him take the soundboard out of the church because they said it took up space that pews could go. Well, they only had about 30 people showing up anyway, so I'm not sure that was a big deal at the time. But they got legalistic and said, we don't need a soundboard in the church. It's because they were resistant to change. What the older son needed to remember was that it wasn't his house in the first place. It was the father's house. And at the father's house, he can throw a celebration for whoever he wants. You see, but what happens is once we start thinking that God's house is our house, then we start throwing in our will or our, wish, our wishes. And it becomes an issue When we decide, we think what God wants to have done at his house, maybe we should just ask him. Maybe in saying, this is how we think it should be done, we should all get on our knees and say, God, how would you want it to be done? The older son started thinking that he had a say in what went on at God's house. Now I'm going to get off my soapbox for a minute. And I'm not saying that I have seen any of that type of behavior at friendship. 
I love the people of friendship. And y'all wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for innovation and change. Amen? Because someone decided to innovate and start a church and name it Friendship. But I'm tired of so-called Christians who are more concerned about their own agenda than they are about reaching lost people. If we can all agree together that whatever it takes to reach lost people, God will not have a limit to what he can do here. So first, legalism nudges. Secondly, legalism grudges. The older son was inside the family but stayed outside the father's house. Now I want to go somewhere for a minute. Think about the irony of that uh, uh, situation there. He was a family member, but he stayed outside the house. How many people do you know that say they are inside the family of God, but you never see them at the father's house? Come on, somebody. A lot of people who claim to be Christians, but they don't go to church because they say they left because of all the hypocrites. Y'all ever met somebody like that? Well, I don't go to church because there's too many hypocrites. Okay, so let me get this straight. The hypocrites are the ones who say they believe in Jesus and they go to church. But you say you believe in Jesus and you don't go to church. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Does that make sense to anybody? I mean, we're not here because we're perfect. We're here because we aren't perfect. And when someone says, that church is full of hypocrites, I say, we got room for one more, brother. Just come on in. We always save a seat for you. You see, if someone says they believe in Christ, I think we should go to his house and worship him. It says the older brother became very angry at the situation. I can imagine the father coming outside and asking, what was going on? Because he heard the son wouldn't come out, and it says the father comes out to plead with him. And here the older son is outside. (laughs) Well, this son of yours, you throw a party for him, and I've never even had a goat. I can just see him throwing a tantrum. And the father says, let me get this straight. So you still are entitled to two-thirds of your inheritance Um, you're still the son of a wealthy landowner, and you're mad because we're having steak tonight. Yeah, I see why you're throwing a pity party. He got mad because he thought he deserved a party thrown for him. But his father's response was, you've always been my son. You're still entitled to everything that I have. What are you so upset about? Instead of being concerned about the welfare of the brother, he is concerned about the fairness of treatment. Somebody gets mad because maybe that person gets to sing a special music and you don't. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, but my worship for the Lord isn't confined to a stage. If I want to sing for the Lord, well, by George, I'll sing for the Lord. It doesn't have to be in front of people. Some people get mad, well, I didn't get picked to sing. Well, you sing for the Lord in your bedroom if you want to. Knock yourself out. The question is, do you want to sing for the Lord or do you want to sing in front of people? You see, legalism wants to be known for fairness. David Wilkerson put it this way. At its heart, legalism is a desire to appear holy. It is trying to be justified before men and not God. We're trying to look better in front of other men and not concerned with how we look before an almighty father. Legalism says at its root, I'm better than you. 
Therefore, the relationship can never be equal. You see, if you think you're better than someone, you can never have an equal relationship with that person. But matter of fact, Christianity never calls us to be equal. It actually says that we are the opposite of legalism. Whereas legalism says that people are indebted to me, Christianity says I am indebted to serve people. That I am actually supposed to lower myself than others and serve them and put them above myself, Matt. Christianity is the opposite of legalism. That is the essence of agape love. That no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said about me, or what you've done to my family or my friends, I'm still going to love you. There may be people in the church that's hurt you. Or maybe people in the church have said something about your family. But you see, if we can't forgive others, then we truly don't understand what God has done for us. If we understand that God has forgiven me for every trespass, for every sin, every wrong thing that I've said that has offended him, I can forgive you for anything that you've done because it is no comparison to my relationship with God. Legalism nudges. Legalism grudges. If you don't know, I like rhymes. (laughs) And legalism judges. That way you can remember, okay, what did the preacher say? I know it all rhymes with each other. Thirdly, Legalism judges. The essence of this part of the story is that the Pharisees, who were keepers of the law, did not believe the Gentiles were now entitled to receive the blessing promised to Abraham. They felt that because they kept the law, they were the only ones who should receive the blessing of Abraham. But the purpose of the law was not to make them righteous in the first place. The purpose of the law was to show them that without Christ, they could not be righteous. Legalism uses the law, which is a standard for showing us that we cannot do what Jesus did, and takes the law as a measuring stick for how good one man is compared to another. Now, I used to long jump in high school. Uh, I don't know if you've been to a track meet. There's high jump, there's long jump. And I did a few different events, but I liked the jumping part because it didn't last as long and I didn't have to breathe as hard. So the jumping fit me pretty good. But I used to long jump, and and I don't remember exactly how far I could jump. I just remember they said I had really good form. And I guess to me, I thought, well, if I can't jump really far, at least I can look good doing it. You know what I mean? So maybe I could jump, let's say, 17 feet. Well, you see, last year, uh, my wife... And my daughter and I went and visited the Grand Canyon. And when I saw the Grand Canyon, the other edge of the canyon is so far away that the colors are actually distorted because of the air quality. And you look at it, and it looks kind of like a painting. It looks fake. It looks like someone took a picture, and that picture has been faded for 25 years. The other side is so far that the quality of the air deteriorates the image once it gets to your eye. Now here's what the law is. The law is like the Grand Canyon. It's like saying, on one side is us. On the other side is God. The law shows us we can never get there. It's impossible. The law shows us we need a bridge, which was Jesus Christ. But what the legalistic Pharisees do is they say, well, 
let's use the law, which is a distance, and see how far we can still jump. <laughs> well, you might not make it to the other side, but at least I can jump 50 feet. The law will always end in death. The law will never get you there, but the Pharisees use it to say, well, who can jump farther? It doesn't matter. You're going to die anyway. That's the purpose of the law. The law still led to death, but they continued using it as a measuring stick. Your goodness is not a valid tool to measure others' badness. See, you may think, I'm a really good person. And so-and-so's not. But what happens is when we use ourselves as the measuring stick, it can make other men look best or worse, better or worse. But what God says is use me as the measuring stick. And when I use God as the measuring stick, everyone looks small. We are all equal when compared to God. We're supposed to use him as the measuring stick. Now, I think all of us today have struggled with aspects of the older brother's problem. We have judged others when we should have been judging ourselves. We have maybe held a grudge against someone because we felt like they did us wrong. Or we have not been involved with something because it didn't fit our taste. Whereas the older brother showed us what to do wrong, we can look back in the story to the father who showed us what to do right. The father forgave the Father accepted, and the Father loved. I believe there is someone here this morning who is in need of the Father's love. I believe someone maybe has been judged by others for the life you've lived, but you are ready to be unconditionally accepted into a heavenly family. I want to invite you to make that decision today. I'm going to ask our musicians if they will come forward and begin to play. Maybe you have been really praying about becoming a member of friendship. And I know sometimes at this time everyone's closing their Bibles and putting their paper up. But I still want you to listen. Maybe you've been praying about becoming a member of friendship. And joining the family of God here. I want to pray with you also. Because I believe there's some people who are ready to take that step and say, You know what, I'm ready to get plugged into the family of God. I'm ready to get committed here. And to become a member. As they play, I'm going to invite us into a time of prayer. Can I have every, every head bowed and every eye closed this morning? Every head bowed and every eye closed. If that's you, and you would say, Preacher, I am really praying about becoming a member. And I truly want God's will in my life. With no one looking around, every head bowed. Every eye closed. If that is you, just lift up your hand and say, I'm really praying about that. I see that individual. I see those people. Anybody else that's really praying about joining this church? Okay, thank you. You can put those hands down. Maybe you've been a Christian for a few months or a few years and you've never been baptized. And you've never taken part in the public symbol of showing that you're part of the family of God. If that is you today, and you said, Preacher, I've been a Christian for years, but I've never been baptized, would you raise your hand? Anybody here that's never taken that step of faith? Okay, and lastly, maybe you have never accepted Christ as your Savior. 
If you know that you don't have a relationship with the Father, I want you to do three things today with every head bowed and every eye closed. First, I want you to just right where you are, admit to God that you're a sinner. Would you just say, God, I know I've lived a sinful life. I know that I've sinned against you. And I ask forgiveness for my sins. Secondly, would you believe that Jesus Christ died to pay the price for your sin? Maybe you could just say right where you're sitting, God, I believe that you sent your son to pay the price for my sin. And lastly, the Bible says that if we confess Jesus Christ before men, that he will confess us before the Father. If you're making that decision today to become a Christian, with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just raise your hand and say, I'm making that decision today, preacher. Is anyone making that decision today? Thank you. I'm going to ask everyone if they would to stand. And at our time of invitation, there's three, three decisions that you can make. You can come and say, preacher, I want to join this church. You can come and say, preacher, I would like to get baptized. Or you can come and say, preacher, I'm accepting Jesus as my Savior today. Won't you come?